everyone. Welcome to Making It, our weekly podcast on building a great business right here in Egypt. Brought to you by Enterprise. This season is sponsored by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. Where we go to buy our stuff has changed over the years. You see, we love convenience. And since the 50s, malls gave us just that. They offered people the ability to buy everything they need and socialize all in one place. And for the longest time, this business model was quite successful. But when e-commerce was introduced in the 90s, consumer expectations for shopping changed. Online retailers could offer you deals, lower prices, and send you targeted ads while you shop from the comfort of your couch. And socializing in malls? Well, that's become a teenage movie trope. Now, malls in the West are seeing a sharp decline, weighed down by large overheads, logistical challenges for expansion, and the quest to stay socially relevant. But if you're hearing this and thinking, this doesn't make any sense. My local malls are doing just fine. You're not alone. That's also what's surprising us. I mean, look at Dubai. It's practically a series of interconnected malls. And in Egypt, we have mall brands, whose growth doesn't seem to be slowing down. So how is retail in emerging markets surviving in the age of online commerce? And how will it continue to survive? We take these questions on bricks and clicks to Ahmad Ismail, the CEO of Majid Al-Futim Properties. Ahmad's responsibilities include managing the company's malls, hotels, and communities, as well as the project management business. Majid Al-Futim's long-term investment view on Egypt meant they were able to absorb economic unrest and devaluation, while proactive measures they took during the COVID pandemic allowed them to preserve their jobs and salaries. So as brick-and-mortar retail declines in the West against same-day shipping, Ahmad tells a different story in emerging markets where options for socializing and entertainment are much less saturated and new developments require community anchors. We discuss how the retail industry must adapt in the world of e-commerce and the evolving nature of the landlord-tenant relationship, as well as the company's data-driven approach to providing experiences to its customers. We also explore the impact of the company's real estate developments, as well as their ambitious plan to become carbon net positive by 2040. And yes, we do ask about the giant ski slope in the middle of the desert. Here's Ahmad, speaking with Hishem, our executive editor and co-host of Making It. Thank you, Ahmad, for joining us. Uh, thank you, Hisham, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're someone who knows retail and knows malls. What's your earliest memory of going to a mall? My earliest personal memory of going to a shopping center is probably Maadi Grand Mall in Maadi. I'm not sure if it qualifies as a shopping center. Oh, wow. But that's probably one of my, my earliest uh, experiences. And then I remember going on exchange to UCLA. And of course, in LA, there are many great malls, including the Beverly Center. But I have to say, Mahadi Grand Mall was probably my first experience here. Yeah. It's still around. It's still around. Yes, I, I see it. And it's still holding strong. <laughs> I drive by it every now and then. I mean, I How still... do you explain that? <laughs> Real estate assets are very, um, very sticky. Sometimes they shift or lose their original purpose. And for a country like Egypt, you know, our real estate assets have lasted for a thousand years. Just look at the pyramids. <laughs> location, location, location. <laughs> Absolutely. How much did that transition or your move to the States in LA, like 
shape how you view these things, how you view urban development, how you view what the role of a mall is in a community, how you viewed uh, all of that? So, so I spent a couple of summers in, in LA in 93 and 96. And every time you get to appreciate a different type of urban environment and an urban fabric. I was then fortunate when, uh, when I joined Booz Allen later on in my career to travel extensively around the world with uh, PNG and Booz. And you get to experience different cities and you see how cities have grown organically over time. And sometimes that's an advantage because it creates a sense of belonging and a sense of place. And in other instances, because it's not very well planned, you know, it creates chronic conditions. And I think in, in Cairo, you see a bit of both. When you come to Dubai, you have a clean sheet of paper and you can almost sort of design the place making from the outset, which I think is a very unique social and urban experiment that very few people are fortunate to be part of. So throughout your travels, learning about how different cities grow organically and the position of retail through all of them, how did that shape your strategies when you went into MAF in Dubai and then when you moved to Egypt and you went to expand abroad? So I joined Major Futain back in 2007. I joined as head of strategy for the group. And obviously we spent a lot of time thinking about the long-term strategy for the business, the future of shopping centers and, and real estate development in, in general. And I think we quickly realized that it's all about the experience. Companies that are in the business of piling and building buildings and, you know, focusing on, on the real estate could have some success. But if you want to have long lasting impact on the business and the community, you really need to think about the customer experience and, and make the design and the entire experience as human centric as, uh, as possible. And as a result of that, some of our shopping centers, big and small, are really, you know, at the nerve center of the community. Right. You were talking about how you used to go to malls back in the 90s. Do your kids do that? Or people of your kids' age still do that? And is the common thread between them that unique customer experience that draws them? Listen, I think customer experience is at the heart of everything that, that we do. Perhaps we did not articulate it as such from the outset, but over the time, we've discovered at Measure Full Time that we are in the business of creating great moments. In fact, our official sort of vision statement is... Uh, great moments for everyone every every day. And, uh, and as, as we've sort of uncovered that DNA that was part of the foundation of the company 25 years ago, we clearly see that it is the foundation of everything we do, whether it's a Carrefour store, a Vox cinema, or a shopping center. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is perhaps anecdotal. When we talk to customers, especially uh, young professionals who are working you know, 60, 70 hours a week, they would prefer to do most of their shopping online because they're simply time starved. That same person, when they go on vacation, they would do very little online shopping and you will see them going out and about sort of exploring the local markets, malls, et cetera, and looking for that entertainment value. The, the other personal experience, which goes to show, you know, the, the importance of solving for experience rather than solving for function or efficiency. It must have been six or seven years ago, we were designing the new cinema in Mall of the Emirates, and we were relocating it from one location to the other. And in doing so, we had a lot more space. We had almost 50% more space to build a new cinema. And what we actually decided to do is to create fantastic experiences, partnering with a Michelin 
star chef like the late Gary Rhodes to create uh, Mission and Star Dining movie experience, partly with IMAX to bring the first laser IMAX 4DX from Korea, this immersive sensorial cinema experience. And in doing all of that, and after we're all done, we realized that actually in 50% of the space, we had the same number of seats as the old cinema, which was very functional, very efficient, you know, oh, wow. 14 regular uh, cinemas. And we thought, well, are we going to make more business? And as a result of solving for experience rather than for function, that cinema in the same number of seats attracts almost 100% more customers and generates perhaps 200% more revenues than a same seat count cinema in the same mall, in the same city that opened six months later. And I guess that goes to show the power of experience. When was this? This was uh, around 2015. Okay. So right as the streaming phenomenon was kind of growing, right? Absolutely. I mean, streaming continues to be very powerful and continues to provide, you know, fantastic entertainment. I'm a a big sort of fan of Netflix. Uh, But there is a place for great experiential movie-going offers. And I think if you don't do that and you offer a plain vanilla, non-distinctive experience, then there is no incentive for anyone to leave their home and go to the cinema. I'd like to take a step back and talk about you guys opening up in Egypt. So Egypt was our first market outside the GCC and was one of our first growth markets. I mean, we've been in Egypt for 20 years now. Outside the GCC, where else are you? We are in 16 markets from, uh, you know, East Africa all the way to Central Asia. So we operate in most of the Arab uh, world. We're also in uh, Pakistan and Central Asia, in East Africa, in Uganda, Kenya and Tanzania with our Carrefour brand. So we we are a super regional business. So as an emerging market, where does Egypt compare on the retail side with the rest of these emerging markets? So Egypt ranks quite high. And I think that's uh, reflective of the one unique demographics that we have. And I think that demographic has paid and will continue to pay a handsome dividend to investors that take a long-term view on the country. I think second is the very fast conversion to modern retail, and we've played a part in that. And and third is uh, the overall, I would say, growth and affluence of of the middle class that continues to fuel retail retail demand. So we're we're very bullish on Egypt. We've been bullish on Egypt for a couple of decades. And you said, Hisham, that in enterprise, you talk to founders as well as foreign businesses. We don't see ourselves as a foreign business in Egypt. I mean, we've been in the country for a couple of decades. All of our leadership teams, 99.9% of them are Egyptians, homegrown talent. A large percentage of our supply chain is Egyptian-based, and we actually use that as a base to export to other markets. So through our Carrefour network, we, we obviously source a lot of local produce, and much of that local produce also ends up in our Carrefour network in, in other markets. So that's, that's one way we export from Egypt. The other way we export is we export talent. 25% of our 44,000 employees for Measure for Team across all markets are, are Egyptian, and, and many of them have, have grown into significant leadership positions. So I think we see ourselves as part of the local fabric of the Egyptian community and society. In terms of revenue, where does Egypt stand from everywhere else that you guys are present? 
So Egypt represents 12% of our revenues. Uh, we see plenty of opportunity for that to continue to grow. We see very healthy double-digit growth in our business uh, up till COVID, and now that's recovering very well. We have been a major investor in Egypt as a result of our confidence and long-term view of the market. So we've invested almost 44 billion pounds into the economy over the year. 44 billion with a B, in case that was not clear. Listen, Egypt has tremendous potential when it comes to FDI. I think uh, we have a good share of FDI coming into the region, but the opportunity to multiply FDI multiple fold coming into Egypt is tremendous. So talk to us about when you first came in, you hit touchdown in Egypt. What did the landscape for retail look like before your investment in Egypt? Were malls just an up-and-coming thing? Were they non-existent? Talk to us about pre-2002. I mean, pre-2002, our business sector in Egypt was pretty much a white space. I mean, there was indeed some shopping centers and shopping arcades attached to hotels, etc. But there were no shopping centers per se that have the right infrastructure, the right uh, parking, are well anchored and, and offer sort of the right variety and store mix. Our first project was City Center Maadi that was shortly followed up by our project in uh, Alexandria, City Center Alexandria. And both were instant hits with the community. I mean, if you recall at the time, City Center Maadi, we invested in the infrastructure to create a tunnel below sort of the ring road to bring people easily in and out of the center. It had proper car park. It was well anchored by the first Carrefour hypermarket in, in the country. So it was instantly embraced by the community. And you see the effects of that in the surrounding sort of neighborhood. And was it tough trying to convince the community that you guys are going to come in and build and basically reshape their community? What was your strategy to kind of get everyone on side here? Because it was still a very new concept back then, right? We obviously sort of spent our time doing due diligence and, and studying the market. But I think our headline strategy was about localization, local talent, local supply, come in and be part of the community and benefit the community rather than be seen as a foreign entity that is trying to take away the market share. And I think we've lived up to that uh, promise. We invest a lot of time in understanding the local community. And one of the big investments we've made over the years is in digital data and analytics about the shopping and entertainment habits of all of our customers, including, by the way, Egyptian tourists that come to Dubai, Bahrain, Oman, or Beirut. Oh, you got to give us some of the unique trends <laughs> that you found there. What particular trend did you guys hone in on? Ah, this is something Egyptians want. This is something that we could tell the consumer and the shopper in Egypt would very, very much like. And so we are going to either design our mall a certain way or offer this line of product or this brand as something that is catered unique to the Egyptian consumer. Some of our data points to how some of the macro global trends are actually more potent and fast growing in Egypt than you would typically expect. So this whole shift away from buying goods to buying experiences is actually more pronounced in many of the communities where we operate. The increasing shift towards, I wouldn't say organic, but healthier, more conscious consumption. The, I would say, um, uh, focus of especially younger segments on health and wellness. Uh, these trends that are typically sort of associated with Western societies, etc., in fact, there are major trends 
especially among the young consumers in, in Egypt. And I think this has allowed us to really bring the right retail mix to many of our shopping centers. It has allowed us to design our entertainment and own retail offerings in such a way to cater to these, these trends. And the uptake has been tremendous. Right. We talked about how MAF are long-term investors in Egypt, 2020, 2021, beyond. What are your investment plans? So listen, we've invested to date, as I said earlier, 44 billion pounds as we think ahead for the next decade. And, and I have to say that you're considering a market like Egypt, you have to take a long-term perspective and you don't have to just to think in terms of quarterly annual results, but take a decade perspective. If we take a 10-year perspective, we certainly see there is no, I would say, constraint to us potentially investing as much in the coming 10 years as we invested in the previous 10. No constraints? We don't see a constraints, actually. I think we see that the market can take more and more of the type of experiences that we offer, the type of retail infrastructure that Carrefour brings to the table. I think for a market with 100 million people, as the economy continues. But that kind of projects an exponential like population growth and like urban expansion and development, right? There is a generational shift that's ongoing in Egypt today. Uh, certainly, uh, when you talk about demographics, and, and a good chunk of Egyptians are below the age of, of 25, as they come into the workforce and they start sort of earning income and sort of deciding where to live and how to live, this will shift the needle tremendously in terms of consumption and in terms of shopping habits. So we see that as a fantastic opportunity for us. And I don't think we fully captured that opportunity yet. I think as a real estate business, of course, we are constrained by the practicalities of securing land, you know, getting permits, building, etc. So that has its natural cycle. We're less constrained by financial constraints. We are a triple B rated organization. So we're investment grade. We have a very strong balance sheets. Uh, I think our real estate portfolio is in excess of almost $11 billion. This is your portfolio in Egypt? That's our total property portfolio, $11 billion. $11 billion. Well, then let me ask you this. You're expanding, obviously, in, in these investments. Um, can you break down for us where are these investments going to go? Are they going to go into more shopping centers, malls, real estate? Can you break that down for us at least? So we are going to continue to invest in, in shopping centers for sure, expanding our current uh, centers and, and building new ones. City Center Alexandria, by the way, have just gone through its third expansion uh, since it first uh, opened. Uh, we have a lot of interesting land bank around our shopping centers that we are looking to develop into complementary uses. We're also looking to bring our capabilities in terms of development and asset management and operations to third-party assets. We signed an MOU with the government to asset manage, lease, and operate a shopping center in Alamein on behalf of the government. We're hoping that this will be one of many to come. We're not just acting as a 100% owner and developer, but we're also acting as a trusted partner to operate assets to the standard that you see in all of major Fotein destinations. So is that where your future is? Are you guys going to be looking to tap into the major urban expansion that's happening in Egypt? Or are you guys still going to remain concentrated in expanding your current assets in geographically within Cairo and Alex and that sort of thing? Well, well the two are not mutually exclusive. I think we will continue right. to invest in our core assets that we own and operate. 
But there is obviously an opportunity for us to accelerate our growth in Egypt and our presence in the country by partnering with other developers and us acting as a development and asset manager. So during the tough times, you guys have been here, obviously, through some of the toughest times economically and politically in Egypt. When those constraints happen, have you guys ever had to sell off uh, part of your assets? We've never even considered that, to be honest with you. I think we've always taken a long-term view. And we're very fortunate to have the balance sheet and to be geographically diversified enough that even if we have a bit of trouble in one market, we don't have to take short-term actions as a result of that. So then let me ask you this. How long after you guys arrived in Egypt was your Egypt business self-sufficient and not relying on you know, capital injections from your GCC operations? So this was well before my days in the company, but I, I presume within a few years we were self, uh, self-sufficient. And that's still the case, even with the devaluation, even with the events of 2011, even now with COVID, you guys still rely on the income you generate from Egypt itself? So, so obviously in 2011 and uh, around the period of devaluation, etc., we were still... Uh, midway through the construction of some of our big assets. And that required, obviously, uh, equity injection to to bring it to completion. I think today, the business, having completed these major assets, and as they continue to perform very well, there there is no need to inject further equity into the business uh, today. Our credit rating and our balance sheet capacity are paramount consideration in in everything that, that we do. So we've obviously had to support the business when needed. But that, these days are behind us. And even now during COVID? Even now during COVID, yeah. I mean, we have, during COVID, I think, um, walked the talk on multiple fronts. Uh, one, we proactively closed all of our shopping centers to help sort of the community deal with the, the pandemic. Uh, we've relieved our tenants from paying rent during the period that we were closed, and that was a proactive uh, measure. We have worked with our tenants to make sure that we provide them with the right support to be able to sustainably trade. We have not taken any action on our people, so we've... How did you do that with the, with the tenants during COVID? So during closures, we've obviously waived rent. For how long? As long as we were closed. As long as we were closed, we were not sort of charging or collecting rent. Oh my God, so that must have been a big financial hit. It, it is a hit for sure. When you are operating at zero revenue, it's not easy. But on the other hand, a business of our size and our balance sheet is built to be able to absorb these type of shocks as well as we've absorbed, you know, devaluation shocks, the shock in 2011 to the economy, et cetera. When do you think you guys will be able to make up for the losses for that closure? So the COVID recovery, as you well know, is is quite uncertain. There are so many factors that would cover sort of the, the horizon and the speed of recovery. I think uh, for the type of business that we're in, we are hopeful that we'll be able to recover to pre-COVID levels by mid to late next uh, next year. That soon, huh? There are still a lot of uncertainties, but that's what we're, or our sort of best case scenario today is looking like. And have you modeled this based on, you know, early signs of traffic after the lockdown kind of ended? Or how are you projecting this? So we're obviously following closely what's going on in other markets. And you've seen markets like China, for instance, rebound very quickly. And you may have seen 
some episodes of revenge shopping where people come back and actually <laughs> spend a lot more <laughs> yep. just to compensate for the time of the lockdown. That's, uh, perhaps you see a bit well, of- Yeah, you guys actually like are, I think, actually more unique a position than people give you credit for because the lockdown, if it did anything, it made people sick of just staying at home and like watching a screen. You sometimes appreciate more something when it gets taken away from you. So uh, you, you can't really sort of cancel thousands of years of evolutionary sort of yearning for social experiences in, in a few weeks. Making Data is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. Back to the question of your tenants, do you expect that almost, if not all, your tenants will be able to come out through the other end of the crisis, all right? So listen, tenant sustainability is, is a key issue for the industry. And the fact of the matter is what COVID did is just accelerated the inevitable for some. Uh, some businesses, some brands, some concepts were already overstretched financially, operationally, and perhaps from a location perspective as well. And what COVID did is just sort of push them across the line. So it was a matter of when, not, not, not if. I think on the other hand, COVID has made stronger companies or stronger, more relevant brands more relevant to, to the customer. And for us, what we want to do is we want to make sure that we continue to support tenants that we believe are sustainable on the long term because their success is our success and vice versa. So you're essentially throwing your weight behind those that have kind of known how to adapt more long term. To a large extent. And how would you support them? Our sort of approach to tenant relationship is evolving. It's not just about the financial relationship and the balance of the commercial agreement between the landlord and the tenant. We are also trying to evolve that relationship into a more modern data-driven digital relationship uh, that has more real-time data exchange. We now have a platform that they can plug into and using all the customer knowledge that we've generated and the access that we have for customers to run a targeted campaign for the likely customers of that, that brand. So you open your data up to them, basically, and help them achieve marketing goals. Absolutely, because we are a platform. How big is the financial hit turning your shopping centers, making them COVID-proof and safe? So we've just announced our half-year half numbers. And I think we've, we've been able to deal with the COVID challenges, A, from a position of strength, and B, with a good level of preparedness and, and responsiveness. So in the first six months of the year, and this, this is our published results, uh, the properties business, we've lost almost a quarter of our EBITDA. So that has partly been because of the cost of closure and rent waivers that we extended during closure, as well as the cost of, of COVID. We're obviously preparing for a future where contactless commerce, I wouldn't say the norm, but is an expected option for all of our customers. And that's why we are investing more and more in click and collect, in concierge services, home delivery services, encouraging all of our tenants to adopt contactless payments, et cetera. So we see that as more of an investment into the future to make the experience better and not just to deal with the immediate realities of COVID-19. Right. I have to ask this. Did the business see a lot of layoffs during the COVID crisis? 
So we have not asked any of our staff to leave as a result of COVID. Wow. And we're talking about a staff of how many people? So in Banjul Futain Properties, we're not a very people-intensive business. So we're, we're around 1,400 people. Uh, but the wider business of Majul Futain is 44,000 people. So I think we, and in Egypt specifically, we have made a conscious decision to preserve both jobs and income levels. So even when we were closed, everybody was paid their full salary. We see that perhaps not just as an expense, but as an investment into our long-term standing with our talent and in long-term standing in the community. That point that you brought up about how COVID is just simply accelerating the inevitable. So e-commerce has basically come in and wreaked havoc on the traditional brick and mortar store. Basically what malls did for mom and pop stores. Uh, is this the pattern in Mina and in Egypt going forward? We see the future as both bricks and clicks. And it's really the integration of both and shopping centers, retailers, entertainers who are able to integrate bricks and clicks into a seamless experience will continue to, to thrive. Certainly, the type of partners we have in that platform is changing. Uh, so certainly the retail mix is shifting more and more towards F&B, entertainment. So that's certainly part of the shift. The other part of the shift is the whole rethinking and reimagination of the landlord-tenant relationship to become more digital, to become more analytical, and to be able to engage with the customer. The third is really making the whole experience much better, making it more entertaining, more social to continue. So like to what you said with the cinemas. Absolutely, absolutely. So if I'm a retailer, and if I don't turn my retail store into an experience for the customer, I'm pretty much dead in this new landscape, correct? You know, you were already dead 10 years ago. You just didn't know it. Right. <laughs> Even though FDI was growing, Egypt kind of never met that FDI target. And then now you have COVID hitting. So as one of the most successful examples of FDI in Egypt, what recommendations would you give policymakers to raise the bar on FDI? In any crisis, there is opportunity. Uh, with the current crisis, there are multiple opportunities for, for Egypt to attract FDI. Uh, one is certainly infrastructure. Infrastructure as an asset class continues to demand good premiums and has healthy demand from investors all over the world. I think that the second opportunity for FDI is really about monetizing the human capital of the Egyptian youth. Companies around the world in dealing with COVID uh, have two major challenges. One is a cost challenge, and the other is an acceleration of digital transformation, data, and analytics. On both fronts, Egypt could provide the solution. We have a well-educated, young, English-speaking workforce that could provide a fantastic offshore experience, not just for the lower end of the spectrum in terms of customer service calls, et cetera, but in terms of digital, data analytics, business process automation, et cetera. And I think this could be a fundamental opportunity for Egypt really to attract FDI. The third opportunity, I would say is around the whole restructuring of global supply chains. Because not just because of COVID, but because of the primarily the uh, US-China trade war that has led many global manufacturers and companies to rethink their manufacturing footprint and their supply chain structures. And that is a massive opportunity. What should Egypt be doing about that? So Egypt should be having an active program to go out and talk to global 
manufacturers and companies in sectors where we have a comparative advantage to encourage them to shift some of the manufacturing capacity to Egypt. Right. Uh, I think that is realistic. Uh, companies uh, are looking that's for that's the opportunity. That's a massive. That's a massive opportunity. Especially when you look at geographic proximity to some of our trading partners, Europe. You look at your cost advantage, your proximity, and even if you are not cost competitive, I think companies like ourselves today are also looking for backup supply chains and contingencies. So even if you move five to ten percent of your capacity to Egypt, even if it is not cost competitive. It's not going to completely destroy your cost structure because it's a relatively small base of a global car manufacturer or a global sort of industrial player. So I think these three opportunities are, are massive. And I think we at Major Fotein uh, are also happy to partner with the government in terms of showcasing our success in Egypt. So Major Al Fotein set out to become a net positive, carbon net positive by 2040. How do you guys plan to get there? So it's a very ambitious target to be a net positive organization by, by 2040. We have divided up the journey into small... And I just want to point out, this is for the across your entire markets, correct? Like this isn't... This is all of our markets uh, in, in aggregate. So as an, as an organization, in aggregate, we want to be a net positive organization by 2040. And we want to eliminate single-use plastics uh, from all of our businesses by 2025. But I think ultimately to get to net positive, we cannot do it alone. And we will have to depend on partnerships with other players, any building, no matter how big. And shopping centers are a bit more fortunate because we have a bigger surface area, cannot pack enough solar panels to generate enough power uh, renewably. So we'll have to depend on offshore. Right. And I think that's like, this is for me what was shocking about that announcement was that so much of it has to do with variables outside of your control. It has to do with government. It has to do with regulation. It has to do with how sustainable is the community that you're in anyway. And as much as Egypt is making strides towards that, it's still not quite anywhere near there, I don't think. So my question is, how do you plan to make a net positive in Egypt itself? So, so given that it's through active engagement with the government, active engagement with the relevant stakeholders, and also enlisting the help of some of our international partners. A big part of our sustainability success in city center Almaza was driven by our partnership with EBRD through you know, the right financing to allow us to invest in the right sort of sustainability technology and to be able to, sort of, to fulfill our LEED certification for the mall. More, I would say globally, we have been very successful with our first issue of Green Sukuks. It was oversubscribed four or five times, and that has allowed us to raise... $600 million, correct? $600 million of Green Sukuk that will go to fund you know, green investments in our existing buildings as well as, as new, new buildings. I also have to draw your ex- attention to an example where we actually have achieved net positive. We have a major development in Dubai called Tilal Al-Ghaf, and the sales center which is a significant size building that showcases that entire development, is a net positive building. So this is the first net positive building that we were able to bring into our business. It's a small building compared to the millions of square meters we have under management, but it's a step in the right direction. And it has generated significant positive engagement with government, utility companies, etc. that we are confident 
will galvanize the entire system to support our net positive strategy. And this is the other thing that kind of confuses me when I hear about real estate developers talking about being sustainable, because construction is really one of the most polluting industries out there. How do you reconcile that? Like, are you guys developing new ways of construction that are sustainable, materials, that sort of thing? So if you take the construction, for instance, of Mall of Egypt and City Center Al-Masa, both of them uh, were 45% plus locally sourced. So that immediately reduces the the footprint. The other thing is that we, as much as possible, uh, source materials and finishes from sustainable sources. And the third thing, I think we partner with our construction partners to bring new methods that are more sustainable. Are we anywhere near a net positive construction process? No, we're not. But technology as well is, is getting there very quickly. I mean, modular uh, construction, 3D printing, etc., could be the answer or could be one of the routes through which the industry achieves, achieves that. It's worth highlighting that the footprint of any building is 50% because of the construction and the second 50% is because of operations and, and maintenance. Right. And part of being net positive, I imagine, is to actually adapt the buildings you already have, right? Because you're not going to just abandon those ones and build brand new sustainable ones. Which is the fundamental challenge not for industries and cities around the world because the existing stock of real estate is much larger than new construction and new buildings that get added every year. So the fundamental challenge is actually with the retrofit and the upgrades of existing buildings. So installing solar panels is the most visible element of what we do in terms of building sustainability. We have a long-standing partnership with Veolia, or a global leader in energy and building services management that looks after all of our buildings and we're continuously upgrading the building management systems as well as the MEP in all of our buildings to become more efficient. We're working with governments everywhere to uh, get into offtake agreements from renewable sources. We had major success in partnership with Siemens and Innova to significantly improve the efficiency of all of our hotels. Again, taking advantage of the fact of slow sort of tourism season to take the time to to do some of the upgrades and changes that could be quite intrusive during a peak season, but now we have the time to do them. Um, Do you not see any limitations on your business? Because I can't imagine being a sustainable mall and owning a ski slope in the desert. You know what I mean? would that cut into the experiential element of your business? It's a, it's a popular question. I think, you know, luckily we have the, the data and the years of experience to be able to sort of uh, set the record straight on the carbon footprint of a ski slope like Ski Egypt or Ski Dubai. Both of them employ, I would say, cutting edge technology in terms of design, insulation, operations, and maintenance. And as a result, the footprint, the carbon footprint, of a ski Dubai is the equivalent of a 250-room hotel because it's well insulated, it's well designed. If we lose power and you know, touch wood, we haven't, it would take three to four days for the ice to melt inside Ski Dubai. We also have a lot of technology that recycles and transfers the cooling capacity between the slope, the rest of the mall, 
Of course, you have the solar power, solar panels on, on the roof, and all the other sort of sustainability and efficiency that makes it really no more than a medium-sized hotel. All right. I want to take us back into something lighter. Now we're wrapping up the interview. This was a very interesting discussion. Let us know more about you. So I'm Egyptian. I'm, I'm born, raised, educated in Egypt. I was a bit of a nerd growing up. Uh, my teenage daughter still thinks I'm a nerd, uh, for sure. I, I went to AUC where I studied computer science and played lots and lots of basketball. Oh, you're a basketball fan? Uh, huge, yes, absolutely. Who's the GOAT? Uh, that's not even a question. Uh, it's Michael Jordan. <laughs> there you go. Did you see that Last Dance documentary? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it made the whole... Co- so much 90s <laughs> nostalgia. I love this. I love what's happening now. Thank God for that Last Dance during COVID. And I'm glad that I finally have the opportunity to go on record and say that Michael Jordan is hands down Definitely the greatest of all time. And I actually have a blue, purple goat in my uh, office that reminds me of that every day. Every time I look at it and say, that's the goat. Let's close this out with a very nice positive. Tell me about your best day. So one, one of the best days is when we uh, secured the deal to build the largest uh, ski slope in the world in China. And I think that was very gratifying because it's the first time that it's a homegrown brand, homegrown concept. And we're taking it to one of the biggest economies in the world, in Shanghai, with very credible partners who are, who are also coincidentally the partners with Disney in Disneyland Shanghai. Is the ski slope open? It opens in hopefully in 2022, in time for the Winter Olympics, if it stays on schedule. Well, if I ever make it there, I'll be thinking of you, sir. Thank you. This was fun. I hope this wasn't uh, too draining on you. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you. If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. This season is brought to you by CIB and USAID.